It's Christmas again, even in the year of our Lord, 2020. It's been a strange year for most of us, and a tragic year for too many. Even our Christmas traditions, those little way stops of familiarity and comfort in the Advent season, have been disrupted. I myself just finished doing Christmas cookies with my kids and my parents, a family tradition dating back as far as I can remember, with a laptop on our dining room table, and the kids showing off their frosting-encrusted decorations to their grandparents via webcam. This year, far too many of us will be praying for loved ones who couldn't join them for Christmas, whether due to severe illness, travel restrictions, quarantine, or death. But though the form of Christmas celebrations may change, the spirit doesn't. Not really. Just because my family wasn't all gathered in the same physical room doesn't mean we didn't use up the leftover red and yellow frosting by making burning Christmas tree cookies, just like always. Exactly how we mark Christmas and what significance we place on it has always varied across cultures and time. In some centuries, Christmas barely registered on the church's liturgical calendar. In our own, it is almost universally celebrated, or at least acknowledged even by non-Christians. And if there is any season and any year for the renewal of tradition, it's the Advent season, and this year. And so here I am, with another sermon from my childhood. These sermons come from the Reverend Bob Lawrence, who was the pastor at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, when I was young. It's a testament to his skill as a storyteller and orator that I can remember those Christmas sermons at all. I was young and prone to daydreaming and not paying attention in church. But he could hold his congregation in his hand telling these stories, never more so than at Christmas, when he'd find a character from the Christmas story whose part in the story wasn't quite fleshed out enough and bring them to life for us in his sermons. And if there wasn't a character he wanted to inhabit in the text, he'd make one up who made sense as somebody who would be text-adjacent. This particular sermon is one of those, and it bears the title, The Eighth Day of Christmas, coming to us from Christmas 1987. I trust that you will enjoy it just as much as I did, then and now. The first lesson this morning is taken from the book of Isaiah. I'll be reading from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, verses 1 to 9. Listen to the word of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I have taken you by the hand and kept you, I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness." I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. The second lesson is in the Gospel of Luke, beginning to read with verse 21 of chapter 2. Listen for the word of God. 
And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to thy people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. Let us pray. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. That jolly old carol about the twelve days of Christmas says that on the eighth day, the hero of the song's true love gave to her eight maids a milking, which, along with the other seven daily gifts, including turtle doves, calling birds, golden rings, geese a-laying, and swans a-swimming, must have made a pretty sight beneath anyone's Christmas tree. And the true lover has four days to go before he finishes his long list of ludicrous gifts. The New Testament, however, tells us that on the eighth day of the very first Christmas, something a bit more solemn happened. Namely, the Christ child was circumcised according to the law of Moses, and thereby would be forever identified with his people, the Jews. But there was even more on that first Christmas. Thirty-two days after the circumcision, Joseph and Mary present Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. Luke doesn't say 38 days, only that when or after their time of purification, referring to another Old Testament law, which declared that the mother of a male child was ceremonially unclean and could not enter the temple for 40 days. This uncleanness was terminated by a service in the temple. Wealthy women brought a lamb to the priest. The poor, two turtle doves or a pair of pigeons. So the first Christmas, instead of being a one-day Big Bang celebration like ours now, or even the 12-day extravaganza of the traditional church calendar, stretched out for 40 days, but not 40 exciting days. In fact, evidently nothing happened at all between the eighth day and the Holy Family's presentation at the temple, and even that 40th day would have been long forgotten, except for something odd one man said. Like an actor with a bit part in a play, Simeon shuffles across the stage, says his brief lines, and then vanishes into the oblivion from which he emerged. We know nothing whatsoever about him except that he said those words in our lesson. And we may speculate that those words we call the nunc dimittis and set to music may have heard them in a very different way. And therein lies our story. It begins when a man say about my age, is backing out of the door of a neat house in a quiet part of Jerusalem. 
and as he does so he bumps square into a huge Roman soldier who is standing just outside. Upon my soul, Roman, I didn't see you standing there, though from the size of you that may be hard to believe. But now that I do see you, that is, may I inquire as to why such a noble a visitor approaches my humble little home? Ah, you seek Simeon. Simeon? No, I am not Simeon, but I know him well, and that is what puzzles me. Why a man of such importance as yourself would be seeking Simeon? You see, I am Jesse Barr Simeon, son of Simeon, in your tongue, and cannot imagine. He is what? Reported to be a dangerous man? My father? I suppose you cannot tell me who accused him, but ah, let me take you to him, and you can see for yourself, for I am going to him now. He is up there at the temple. He is always there. I'm surprised they didn't tell you. He prays, you see. Every day he prays there. I am taking him his breakfast, which will tell you how early he left to go pray, and often I bring his supper, which tells you how long he prays when he gets there. So what is dangerous about an old man saying his prayers? But these are strange times, Roman. You are a centurion, I think. Ah, most impressive. But why they should send you to investigate Simeon? <laughs> now it's clear to me. The priests sent you, yes? Of course, of course. They want you to do their dirty work for them. That's it. Of course it is. That is behind their accusations that my father is a dangerous man. How dangerous can a man almost ninety be, Roman? But let me explain what is behind the accusations of those jittery old men. It all started some eight, perhaps ten years ago, when Quirinius was governor in Syria. In a way, the whole affair was started by your emperor, perhaps I should say, our noble emperor in Rome. We Jews have difficulty in dealing with political reality. I refer particularly to the so-called census, which I may be so bold as to suggest was nothing more than another way of taxing us Jews and the rest of the world. Well, it does require a lot of money to keep Caesar in the manner to which an emperor should be kept, you understand me, I'm sure, and no offense is meant. But it was a crazy time. People coming from everywhere to register at the place of their birth. Confusion everywhere. That's when it happened. My father, a most devout and upright man, I assure you, paid the tax. But his religious devotion took him to the temple day after day. And somehow or other, he got the idea God had spoken to him, revealed, as it were, that he, Simeon, would live to see the consolation of Israel. It is a veiled reference to the coming of Messiah, the Christ in your tongue, a savior, a foolish hope, of course. You and I know there can be no Messiah now, not so long as Caesar lives, and long may that be, long may that be. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. One day, Simeon was praying in the temple. I had just brought him a meal, for he had not been home for two days, and the Lord alone knows what he ate. He prayed, and I sat, waiting. There was a line of people, parents with their infant children mostly, bringing their purification offerings. It's a thing we Jews do. Boring to watch after a while. Suddenly, my father turned round and stared in the strangest way at a family standing there. Galileans from the way they dressed, and poor, for they only had two turtle doves to offer. The law allows that for the poor. Then, before I could say his name, he had walked over to the mother, took the child up in his arms, and began to—it grieves me to tell you this, Centurion—he began to, uh, 
sing. Loudly, too. It was almost like a psalm, something he himself had composed. And from the way he said it, I felt that he had been waiting for a very long time to sing it, just at that particular moment. What were the words? Uh, this is the difficult part to tell you. The words went something like, Lord, let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Uh, there was more to it, but that was enough. In case you did not grasp his meaning, Simeon was claiming that this peasant's child was Messiah, Christ. Perhaps you could sniff a bit of treason in that song if you tried, but good heavens, man, such words are not the ranting of a dangerous man. Dear Roman, these are the babblings of a madman. Foolishness, foolishness, the wild dreams of one who has lost his wits, perhaps the raving of a man possessed. The child's parents seemed to marvel at such words, as if they actually believed him. But I suppose every Jewish mother hopes her son will be the savior of our people, whatever that means, as every Roman mother must hope her son grows up to be Caesar. The other parents, now they were not so pleased by Simeon's song. They resented his picking some other child than theirs. Of course, most of those who heard Simeon just laughed. Even the priests did, then. It was also absurd. You see, Roman, I told you the child was of Galilean parents. Galilean! And there is no way the Messiah can come from Galilee. We here in Jerusalem call it Galilee of the Gentiles. Even if the Messiah was born Galilean, the Jews would never accept him. Even more absurd was the idea that there can even be a Messiah anymore. Oh, they have tried. One who even was a Galilean, and I confess... I myself thought he might really be Messiah. His name was Judas, Judas the Galilean. When the new tax was levied, he resisted it, said anyone who paid it admitted he was a slave. Yes, he was some man, a man like David, a soldier, strong, absolutely fearless. Why, he raised an army to resist Rome. What happened to him, you ask? What do you think? Romans nailed his Galilean hide to a cross and half of his army with him. And that was that except for those who call themselves zealots and claim him as their patron. But Judas died as a fool dies, closing his eyes to reality. Rome need fear no messiahs. They haven't a chance now, and we both know it. Not even God, if there is one, could raise up a messiah in this world. And that is what this is all about. It isn't what my father said anymore. The fact is that he keeps on saying it, my eyes have seen your salvation. He tells everyone he sees that he has seen the Messiah. He's been doing it now for ten years. Ten years. At first it was amusing. Then it became boring. Then annoying. Until now, now that he is old and untidy, and he slurs his speech and drools from his mouth, he is a nuisance. Everyone wants him and his raving gone, but no one wants to pitch a man out of the temple for saying his prayers. So they summon you, Centurion. They can blame you, Romans, if anyone protests. And that will be the end of the nuisance. And that is the truth, Roman. You seek a harmless old man who has lost his wits, believing some impossible things happened that day in the temple. God's Messiah with a Galilean face. But sometimes I think I am losing my mind too, Centurion. Sometimes late at night I toss upon my bed remembering what I have seen. Long lines of crosses along our highways, with a Jew hanging dead from each one, 
and Roman soldiers lying dead in an alley with their throats slit by a zealot's knife. I still hear the cries of the children of Bethlehem that Herod in his madness slaughtered. I see Herod kissing the feet of Caesar in order to keep his throne, and Caesar making peace with a sword, watching even the priests and the men of God striving among themselves for power. And I know it is all vanity. It all leads to the same end, and in those sleepless nights, I wonder if perhaps my father is the last sane man on earth, and we are made with our lust for power and greed for wealth. Then do not think me mad. I wonder if God, if God there be, might come and save in a different way. Imagine it, Roman, a Messiah that not even the Jews would expect, though we pray for him every day. Imagine a Galilean Christ, a Christ contaminated by Gentiles, a Messiah unlike David, and not like the priests either, or Herod, or even Caesar, but a Savior who brings peace not by wielding a sword, but who changes hearts, hearts like yours and mine that have grown wary with unbelief and cynicism. You look at me and smile, Roman, but is it because you think I am mad too? Or because such thoughts pierce your soldier's armor in the night, too, and there are longings in you this world cannot understand or explain? Which is it, Roman? Madness? Or some deathless hope none of us can finally escape? Well, no matter. We are almost to the temple. Perhaps the god who spoke such madness to Simeon might speak to us, eh? Maybe with some news from Galilee. Galilee of the Gentiles. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.